politics and above religion, a moral authority exists known globally as the ageless wisdom. It is the study of consciousness, the mystery of awareness, which cannot be measured, yet will not be denied. Stay tuned as we explore consciousness, the fundamental nature of reality. Welcome to the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School with Michael Benner. Hello, friends, and good afternoon. Thanks for joining us for today's episode of the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School on 90.7 FM KPFK for all of Southern California and streaming for the world at kpfk.org. I want to open the show today with a little story. And I'm going to talk about myself here, something I don't do very often, although uh, who I am spills out from time to time (laughs) and gets all over the floor. But uh, when I was in college and I decided that I was going to change my major from, from general business, can you imagine, to television and radio management, and a little bit of film school in there as well. I began to look at major market talent. Who in New York, Chicago, Los Angeles, Houston, Detroit, was outstanding? And not only as DJs, but as news people, and in particular, talk show host people. And uh, here's the rub. I knew I'd have to work in Detroit for a few years, born and raised in Michigan. That was a major market. And then I had my eye on New York, Chicago, or Los Angeles. Houston, I never really considered going into Texas. And it snowed in New York and Chicago, so they not really left L.A. And after four years in Detroit, in the Motor City, which I just absolutely loved, Uh, By 1975, I came to Los Angeles. And in this city, there was a talk show giant working at KABC on La Cienega Boulevard, Michael Jackson. And at the time, he was the only Michael Jackson. There was this R&B group called the Jackson Five that we knew about, but Michael Jackson... The uh, pop singer was still a little boy. So if you said the name Michael Jackson, everybody knew you were talking about this British talk show host on the AM radio dial. Again, I knew about Michael in college. And when I finally came to Los Angeles, this was my goal. This was my uh, ideal. The top of the mountain would be to get in the doors at ABC and just see Michael Jackson at work, just meet him and uh, somehow learn to emulate him. Well, a couple of years down the road, 1977, that dream came true, and I was hired to work on the FM side of ABC, KLOS. Many of you, I'm sure, listened to those radio programs I did from 77 till 87, all-night talk radio on a big rock station in L.A., KLOS. I did news. I did Dodger Post game news for years on KABC. And, of course, I got to meet all these 
heroes of mine, Michael Jackson, uh, Ken Minyard and Bob Arthur, Ken and Bob in the morning, uh, you know, Elmer Dills who did the uh, restaurant show and the great Al Downing, the baseball player who did a sports show, Jeff Witcher, um, Eric Braverman, another sports guy, a booth announcer named Lou Cook, who was a holdover from the 1930s radio days when there were booth announcers that read the commercials live in between the shows. Uh, it was just really exciting. And not only did I get to work with Michael Jackson, but uh, the peak of my career, really, which is over 50 years now on the radio, were the handful of days that I substituted as a guest host on Michael's program, not only on KABC, but the ABC Talk Radio Net, which was about 155 radio stations coast to coast. Now, the thing you need to know is that at this time, there was no Rush Limbaugh and no Fox News. Uh, there were outrageous right-wing talk show hosts. You may be old enough to remember Joe Pine, for example, or Morton Downey. If you're in Southern California, you might remember Sam Yordy's sidekick, Wally George, and the outrageous right-wing program that he did down in Orange County, and George Putnam, and and there were other right-wingers. They weren't nearly as nasty as right-wing talk show hosts are in this day and age. But that's what made Michael Jackson stand out, because he was classy. He was a gentleman. He had this refined British accent that signified an educated, erudite uh, gentleman who... Because of his education and his intelligence, he was fair, and he listened, and there was a family atmosphere. We had Ray Bream at night, who was conservative. We had, uh, you know, all kinds of people left, right, and center at that radio station, KABC in the 80s. Enormous ratings, huge ratings, never seen before or since. And we were a family. We really genuinely liked each other and got along. Um, with no exceptions. I, I should mention also the radio psychologists, the, the Tony Grants and the uh, David Viscotts, who were pioneering talk radio with their kind of self-help beyond Ann Landers or Dear Abby on the radio. These were great days. These were my salad days, so to speak. Well, last Friday night, Michael Jackson died. He passed away, 87 years old. I had tried to get a hold of Michael, and I know others in recent years had tried to reach Michael, but he's a, a very private man, very dignified man, and just chose to shelter himself and be unavailable for, gee, the last decade or more. But I have an interview that I did with Michael Jackson the talk show Dean, in 2004 on this radio station. That's 18 years ago. So it's a bit dated, but most of my listeners are old enough to remember talk radio before Rush Limbaugh, before the Reagan administration 
demolished the Fairness Doctrine and the seven radio station limit on ownership was thrown out the window and today only six corporations own everything. And I, I don't have to tell you what's happened to radio listenership, not only because of the destruction of the Fairness Doctrine, the ascendance of shock radio, hate radio, in-your-face, fear-mongering talk radio, but also the internet and uh, streaming music and too many changes, really, to summarize here. But I want to do a tribute next week to Michael Jackson because he was my chief mentor, kind of an idol or a hero of mine. And uh, not like you worship a sports guy, but the way I just learned everything that I know, almost everything that I know about doing radio interviews and, and being on the radio in general from listening to Michael Jackson. He was just the best. And he's going to be dearly missed. I've seen chatter on the internet in the last few days. It's clear that he's missed already, even though he hasn't been on the radio for 25 years or more. So um, I'm going to run that interview next week in this spot. He was on for two hours. I'm going to edit it down to one hour, a little bit less than an hour, sort of the highlights. And he just loved being on KPFK. He couldn't get over the fact that we <laughs> that we had no commercials, that we were listener-sponsored. And uh, we took telephone calls, and it, it's something I want you to hear and something that I feel compelled to do, really, as a tribute to uh, the great dean of talk radio. You can, you can say there's others like Larry King, but uh, there's nobody like Michael. He was absolutely the best. And my condolences go to his family and his friends. And uh, I hope you'll join me a week from today when I replay this KPFK interview where, where Michael came in studio on my show at that time. Again, it was February of 2004, so we'll, we'll be talking about the uh, the Bush election, the war in Iraq, weapons of mass destruction, uh, John Kerry's candidacy. Uh, it's a bit of a flashback, but most of it holds up really, really well. And uh, we talk a lot about talk radio and radio in general and what we love about it. Now, having said that, let me introduce my guest. He'll be with us right after this short break. His name is Thomas Satoshi Pruxma, and he is a young American poet who has translated an ancient and ageless Indian book of aphorisms, of wisdom sayings, a book that in India is considered an absolute classic, a timeless classic, not unlike the Tao Te Ching of China, or the I Ching for that matter. It's called the Curl. And, um, and I don't speak Tamil or Bengali or Hindi, so I'll be butchering some of these Indian words, but Thomas will help me out. And we'll talk about why, why translate a book that's this old, 1,600, 1,700 years, and the important role that this book is played in influencing great writers and, and other influential people uh, throughout history. 
Okay, so that's coming up. Thomas Satoshi Prixma. Stay tuned for that. And we'll bring him on board right after this short break. You're listening to the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School on 90.7 KPFK. And welcome back to the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School on 90.7 FM KPFK for all of Southern California from Santa Barbara to San Diego, streaming for the world at KPFK. Dot org. You know, I never really get tired of saying that. It's after all the years that I did radio to think that besides radio, we're also on the internet and can be heard in every corner of the world. I just think that's so wonderful, so cool. So however you happen to be with us, the live broadcast here in Southern California or by the internet, wherever you happen to be, thank you, thank you for joining us. I promise you a really interesting, intriguing program today. We're going to talk about a new translation of a book that I feel like I should know about or should have known about by now and embarrassingly have just discovered. But thankfully, uh, some compare this book to the um, Tao Te Ching by uh, Lao Tzu. Uh, some call it the uh, Tamil Veda. Many refer to it as the divine book in India, although it's very secular in nature, a book about ethics, about love, about prosperity, and a book that's so old in its original form, nobody really knows just how old. And it's called, in my poor English, the Karal. My guest will pronounce that much better than I. He is the translator of this book, the newest version by Thomas Hitoshi Pruxma. How did they do on your name, Thomas? You did perfectly. Thank you and congratulations. This book is just out, just published. You must be very excited. I'm I'm thrilled, and I'm I'm also thrilled to be able to speak with you, and with all of those who are listening with us about this really extraordinary uh, work of of practical wisdom. Kural K U R A L in English. That's the best we can do. That's sort of an abbreviation. It has a longer name, doesn't it? It does. Uh, the sort of full name is Tirukural. And that breaks down into two pieces, tiru, which is an honorific, as in great or eminent or sacred or holy, and kuro, which is, a, in fact, a verse form, the verse form in which the work has been composed. So we can translate that into English by saying the kuro, as in with the the implying a certain level of eminence and importance. Now, uh, before we get into the the substance of the book, let's talk a little about the format, because I found this curious. It's poetic by nature, and yet uh, it's a set of aphorisms that conform to sort of a strict set of rules. How does the formatting work? And in translating from the Tamil, were you able to maintain that formatting? Oh, that's a wonderful, wonderful question. 
there's sort of two aspects that I'd want to uh, explore. One is the format of the book as a whole, which is that these aphorisms are put into chapters of 10 each, and there are 133 of these chapters, and each chapter deals with some specific aspect of life. So it's kind of a handbook on subjects such as rain or kindness or hospitality or knowing the right time to undertake an action. But each of these these verses, these quarrel forms, are exceedingly compact poetic utterances. They are um, they they are not even what we would call in English a couplet. A couplet meaning sort of two lines of the same length that are somehow uh, rhymed or related to each other. The quarrel form is a form which is we could say one and five eighths lines. The first line is the equivalent of four feet or four poetic units, and the second line is a mere two and a half. So it is a form which demands of a poet that they condense their meaning and condense the poetic experience into the smallest possible form. And of course, a great poet like Thiruvalluvar, the uh, author of the Kurul, is able to get an entire universe into each of these very uh, short um, and profound statements. And how difficult must it have been for you to attempt to honor that form as you translate it to English? Well, it was so difficult, it didn't even occur to me to try for years. I first studied the work in depth in 2003 and 2004 uh, on a Fulbright grant, uh, and I studied it with my Tamar teacher, the late Dr. K.V. Ramakodi. And in the years since, he would suggest somewhat elusively or elliptically that, you know, maybe somebody should do a proper translation of this work. Uh, and I'd always say, oh, well, that would be a great thing for someone to do, uh, imagining a you know, up-and-coming PhD student in a university somewhere undertaking the project. At the time, my own focus was becoming a better writer and becoming a better poet. And so a dozen years later, I suddenly thought, well, maybe I'll give translating this work a try as part of my daily practice as a poet and as a writer. And so on the 1st of January of 2016, I began translating one verse a day because it seemed that I could I could give that kind of energy to it. Sort of a concentrated attention uh, I found was, was necessary to undertake the process. And uh, actually, interestingly, I mentioned this to my Tamar teacher a few weeks later after I had the equivalent of maybe two or three chapters. And he said, oh, good, you finally got the hint. And, and from there, you know, not only was I working on it on my own, but I was, I was working with my teacher on these verses. And of course, the great challenge of these verses is that uh, be, not only that they are so compact, but they are compact in a very particular way, not only rhythmically and, or metrically, but as far as the sound of the words. There's a very um, demanding scheme of internal rhymes that the verse form asks of a poet, so that the, the vowel sounds of certain key words uh, are, are meant to rhyme with each other. The consonant sounds, not only at the beginnings, but even in the middle of words or of feet, are expected to resonate with each other. 
And my primary aim as a translator was to translate not merely the idea or principle of any given verse, but the experience, the poetic experience of the verse, which meant trying to convey at least something of the sense of rhythm, the sense of a vowel uh, resonating with vowel and consonant uh, resonating with consonant. And so I set out a series of, uh, or I should say, the work itself presented a series of principles to me uh, that I try to honor the dissymmetry of the lines, the longer first line and the shorter second line, that I try to make the English as compact and resonant as possible, and that I try to uh, suggest to the extent that it was possible for me and to the extent that it is possible in English to suggest something of this play of vowel and consonant, of internal rhyme, uh, of, of the entire experience of hearing or reading such a poem and the way that it works on all of our senses, not just on our intellect, but also on our ear or even in our body if we say these poems out loud. I'm not a very uh, experienced poet myself. I've only dabbled in it, but it sounds like you're talking about what we might think of as alliteration uh, internal rhyming is that alliteration? If I got yes, alliteration, internal rhyming. Uh, another uh, term would be consonants, consonant sounds rhyming, or assonance, which is vowel sounds rhyming. These are all some of the different terms for it. There's a Bob Dylan tune called "It's All Right, Ma" that's full of that, and I saw Dylan one time being interviewed by Ed Bradley on 60 Minutes, and he quoted himself, and he said, how do you write something like that? And he was acknowledging, as, as many lyricists and poets will, that it seems that these verses often come through the person rather than from them. Yes. You want to speak to that? I, I do, in fact, because an enormously important part of my own apprenticeship as, as a poet and as a writer has been learning how one um, creates the conditions under, under which such a thing might, might happen. So that, you know, I'm, when I'm writing my best, it is not me that is writing. It's much more akin to me listening to what I can hear just at the edge of my capacity, my inner capacity to hear. And in the case of translation, it is a very uh, involved process of listening because not only am I listening to the work and the words of the poet and listening to them as deeply as I can and listening furthermore to the, the heart of the poet beyond or behind the words, to the spirit of the poet as that spirit moves in the words. I'm also trying not to literalize that experience in English. I'm also trying to open myself to the experience in English of that spirit, the infusion of that spirit, or the energy of that heart, if you will, um, suggesting something to me that I, in my much more limited sense, might not be able to think up. But I might be able to hear and acknowledge and receive and try in some way to embody on the page. Well, I guess that's what we love about song lyrics and poetry 
not just the fact that there's a rhyming scheme, but there's also a rhythm, a pattern. But we shift, I think, from our left brain, from the logical, linear approach to understanding things that we learned in school, you know, a very deductive, analytical approach to understanding information, to more of a right brain experience where we allow ourselves to be, oh, sort of swept away by the whole experience of listening to it. it it's like a dance or a beautiful uh, a landscape or a painting of some sort. And what you say, I think, is is deeply and profoundly important because in my own experience of poetry, um, there was a whole period of my life in which I didn't really get it. Uh, and it was largely because of this emphasis, which, you know, was partly from my schooling and partly from my own um, sort of makeup or constitution, if you will, to be very analytical and to be uh, in some ways very literal and interested, for instance, in great sort of philosophical questions, but also interested in them in a very, uh, I want sort of the facts. I want the clearest, most distinct answer, if you will. And it wasn't, in fact, until I went to uh, South India the first time, this was in 1998 till 2000, it wasn't even until then that I was able to taste this much larger and richer and sensual experience of poetry. And it's thanks to my Tamar teacher, because he, uh, I, I had gone to him because I wanted to be able to speak Tamar. Tamar is a language which has very distinct spoken and written forms. And for me, being able to speak was really more <laughs> than enough, I thought, at the time. But not only did he guide me into being able to read and write as well, he also one day announced that I was going to study poetry. And he started me, interestingly enough, with a 12th century Tamar woman poet and saint named Abbayar, a really wonderful poet that I would go on to translate in a book called Give, Eat, and Live, Poems of Abbayar. But at this initial stage, he had me memorize about 25 of this poet's verses. And these were very short four-line verses. And because they were 12th century, uh, I couldn't yet, and because they were also poetry, I couldn't yet fully understand them. And so in memorizing them, all I really could do was listen to them without the kind of analytical concern with well, what does this or that word mean. And this, for me, proved to be the great opening, the great doorway, because listening to these poems, I could hear something in them that I hadn't really heard before, which was how good they sounded, the music of their lines, the rhythms of their lines, and how that brought the language into a, a extraordinarily memorable and even transcendent experience, at the same time that it was a deeply embodied experience with me reciting with my body and my breath uh, these these ancient words, which could somehow be entirely new and fresh at the same time. There is a discipline that's, uh, I, I'm sure it's worldwide. I think it's only about 30 or 40 years old in the United States called movement awareness. Mm. The idea that by 
allowing ourselves to go beyond forms of dance and just allow ourselves to move, perhaps as we did when we were children, and just spontaneously leap or skip or sway, that it awakens us in certain ways. And I think music does that, and I think poetry does that. You think there's ideally an awakening and expanded awareness that is promoted by reading good poetry? I think there is an enormous awakening that is offered to us in the work of a great poet. And it has precisely to do with an awakening of our senses, of all of our senses, not merely our our intellect, which of course is important, but also these felt bodily senses of of movement, of music, uh, of the capacity to listen to what a poet listens to when he or she or they invoke a verse, invoke a poem. I love that you mentioned movement awareness because I myself have found myself in recent years exploring the work of Moshe Feldenkrais and his practice of awareness through movement and have been astonished by what not just the movement, but what happens when we attend with all of our sense and senses to the way the body moves, for instance. Uh, Because it is also a way of learning how our mind moves, and beyond that, the way our mind and body can move in a form of harmony. And with that, that word harmony, we enter into music. We enter into the movement, which is dance. We enter into that possibility of a kind of deep integration, which of course the old, the ancient poets, and even the not-so-ancient poets still dared to call soul. And and so I, I, I find that, uh, for me at least personally, poetry has been one of the ways to enter into a much deeper and more rich and profound experience, not only of words, but of the world and of life itself. The flip side of that helps us understand why energy healers will often say that arthritis, for example, can be fostered or promoted by inflexible thinking. Hmm. That makes good sense to me. Yeah. You know, we talk about the mind-body connection, and maybe it's not a connection. Maybe it's just the same thing, mind and body. <laughs> and I, you know, and I think that that the work of a great poet can remind us of that unity, can help us to see it, because it may be our very thinking which prevents us from acknowledging that as a possibility. And I think Descartes may have had it all wrong. How does does a young man like yourself find himself in India? And uh, how did you discover the Kerala in the first place? Uh, These are wonderful, wonderful questions. And and, um, I, when I was finishing up my time in college, I thought I had my life planned out for me. I thought I would go to Mexico and study Spanish and explore the life of an indigenous community that I had come to know there. Uh, and I was in the running for a fellowship and, and, and thought that's what I would do. And then it didn't happen. And I suddenly found myself on the, the uh, threshold of graduation, having no idea what I was going to do. 
And of course, you know, looking back, I can see that as a normal part of our human experience. But at the time, it felt quite devastating, catastrophic even. And then something else appeared, which was an opportunity to to apply for a fellowship that would take me to South India for two years and would paradoxically or interestingly enough allow me to do many of the things I wanted to do in southern Mexico, which was to learn another language deeply, which was something I hadn't yet done. Uh, and moreover, to explore whatever interest I may have myself, which was in the relationship between people and land and to what a what, what the experience of living in a rooted community. And I was also, uh, I had a, a, a very much a part-time job teaching in a university, teaching English. And so I accepted that fellowship after a, a period of soul searching. And very soon on, uh, met the man that became my Tamil teacher, Dr. K.V. Ramakodi. As far as my relationship to the Kural, my first experience of it, uh, aside from you know having heard about it and the preparation that I undertook for going to South India, to the state of Tamil Nadu in South India, uh, uh, very early on, maybe the third or even the second month that I was teaching at the American College in Madurai, which is a, an old and venerable city in, in sort of the middle of the state of Tamil Nadu. It's, a, it's been for, for centuries, for millennia, even a cultural center for the Tamil language. I went to one of my students' houses. They invited me for dinner. And uh, they not only fed me an enormous and sumptuous and extraordinarily delicious feast. And they not only invited all of their neighbors to come and meet this strange young foreign teacher who somehow could speak a word or two of Tamar, but before I left, they gave me uh, two gifts. One was a book of contemporary poetry or a book by a contemporary poet. And one was a gift edition of the Tirukurar which at the time I had no idea I would ever be able to read, but which, of course, I accepted with uh, as much grace as I could muster. And the father of my student, who, who presented uh, somewhat formally uh, these books to me, said, pointing to the Tirukurar, he said, this book contains everything you will need to know. It deals with every aspect of life. So when you are able to read Tamar well, you must read this book well. And so I took that book and I put it on my shelf and I, you know, sort of fearfully imagined that maybe one day I'd be able to read it, but I don't know, maybe 50 years from now. Um, but like I said, my, my teacher, you know, step by step guided me into the ability not only to speak, but also to read and to write. And so when I returned this, this year in 2003, 2004 under this grant, uh, continuing the study of language and and literature and land, uh, this was one of the, the the books that I thought, no, I think it's time for us to read this. And he certainly agreed because it has many things to say about that relationship. And so that was really my uh, the the beginning of my my much deeper exploration of of the work. We read a an edition which uh, pairs each of the original verses with the most important and oldest of the old commentaries written perhaps between the 11th and the 13th centuries, uh, which helped to open up and illuminate each of these verses, uh, each in their own ways. 
I also memorized maybe six or six, six or seven hundred of these verses and even learned how to write in that verse form. Not very well, mind you, but I did uh, attempt to enter into the form as a poet as well as a student. Well, I want to crack the cover and wade in a little bit and talk about some of these verses and some of the ancient wisdom that's in this book, the Corral. Uh My guest, we need to take a short break. My guest is Thomas Hitoshi Pruxma who has translated a brand new, wonderful translation of the Kural, this ancient Indian classic, this revered uh, holy book, but it's actually quite secular in nature. We'll see if we can resolve that as well when we return. You're listening to The Mystery School on KPFK. We'll be back right after this. The Ageless Wisdom Mystery School on KPFK with Michael Benner and my guest today, Thomas Hitoshi Pruxma, who uh, just recently, a week ago or so, has had released a brand new translation of India's, uh, well, certainly one of its most revered texts, and they have many. And... Um, Thomas, let me ask you, since there are countless translations of this book in many, many languages, why did you feel the need, or was it just, I mean, what was your motive for translating or creating yet another translation of the Quran? Another beautiful question, Michael. I my, I've read many of these, these translations, these other translations, and almost uh, all of them do uh, something very peculiar, is that they, they read the original work and then they translate their uh, interpretation of the work. They translate the quote-unquote meaning of the poem, which of course does have a certain amount of meaning and does convey something of the, the poem. But what very few, in fact, really none of the translations to my, uh, not just mine, but to my heart, convey the experience of the poem itself, which is what includes not just the meanings of the words, but the, uh, the music of the words, the rhythms of the words, because this uh, sense of music and of movement and of rhythm is as much a part of the experience and meaning, if you will, of the poem as whatever thought we may distill from the poem. Uh, so my, you know, part of my aspiration was to convey, to the extent that it was possible for me and for the English language, to convey something of that experience, because that's what takes a work like this out of the realm of being a kind of book of rules, which I think a person can mistakenly see it as, as to into being something much more playful and life-affirming and transformative, because each of these verses meets us uh, with all of these other aspects of delight and of life and of energy and of sound and of music in such a way that they are also able to meet us directly and have something to say to us. Even now, all these centuries later in a different language can have something to say to us which may be essential, which may guide us on our own unique uh, and unrepeatable journey through this world. I mentioned earlier in the show that this book is uh, secular in nature, and yet it's in India often referred to as a divine book. Um, 
How do we reconcile that? Is it secular? Is it holy? This is a wonderful question. Uh, perhaps the easiest way to address it would be to say that it is both. It is a work, it begins, for instance, with a chapter in praise of the gods, but even in doing so, uh, the poetry, because it is poetry, is open to that God being God in a kind of singular sense, gods in a plural sense, or even the godlike uh, teachers of Jainism. And this book, uh, uh, there are many scholars who, who say, and I think they, they say rightly, it, it is deeply steeped in Jainism, so that it could be, you know, a divinity or it could be teachers who are uh, uh, embody qualities that we might want to name as divine. But from that first chapter, the very second chapter is on the glory of rain. And from there on, the entire work is deeply interested and concerned and delights in, at the same time, our earthly existence, the nitty-gritty of everyday life, whether the life of a home or the life of the heart in a relationship or in the longing for a relationship or the life of a larger community or country, if you will. What does it mean to be the leader, for instance, of a country or of any uh, community? All of these very practical concerns, uh, which can be very easily seen as secular, and in fact are, they, um, they uh, are part of what we do on a very day-to-day -day basis. And yet the work as a whole reminds us that the seemingly secular world is also a holy vision is also a transcendent realm had we clarity to see it. Uh, so that the words, for instance, secular and religious, cease to uh, mean what they might have meant before, and we enter into an understanding where everything is, in a sense, holy, at the same time that everything is as real and as earthly uh, and as juicy uh, as, as it in fact is. We could use some of that in uh, the United States where religion is often so dogmatic and rigid that we have to keep insisting that there be a separation between church and state. And again, we're back to the Descartes idea of breaking things into two. Yes. Um, maybe we could rise up with an expanded awareness that would allow us to see the, the harmony rather than the the division and such things. Now, the author, we're not even sure who wrote this. It's often attributed to someone named Valuvar. Yes. Help me with this. Valuvar or Tiruvalluvar, uh, who is traditionally thought to have been a weaver, a married weaver, so somebody very much involved in the nitty-gritty of day-to-day -day life. Not an aesthetic off somewhere in a cave, but somebody with a craft. Uh, an artisan uh, with a house, a household with a family. And, uh, you know, at, at this level, we, we can look back and we can, we can try to guess whether such a person existed uh, or not. And that is an interesting question. Uh, and yet the work itself suggests a sensibility which um, is very much that we can uh, we can imagine it being of of such a figure of being a weaver of being someone who wants to weave together if you will all of these different strands of our experience into a a larger whole which is both strong 
and sound and beautiful. And again, we're not sure the date, but is a, the best guess from a scholarly study of the work that it's from three or 400 AD? Yes, yeah, somewhere from the roughly the third to fifth centuries AD is a pretty good, good guess. Now, there are different sections, as I understand. Um, these are aphorisms. These are wisdom sayings on, well, I guess the ethics is what caught my attention, the idea of virtue, living a virtuous life. I think many people consider them to be motivated as spiritual people because it pleases God, or they wish to avoid going to hell, or they want the rewards of heaven. But there is just the idea of the day-to-day -day benefit of living a virtuous life. Can you, can, can you comment on virtue? Yes. Uh, so the work divides into three major parts, and the first of these parts is ethics, is virtue, and not as a means to an end, as a way to getting to heaven or to some blissful state, but as a good in and of itself, and as a joy in and of itself. Um, it, that you're not doing something so that in some future existence or some uh, future birth, you'll be happy, but you'll be happy right here and now. <laughs> and, you know, whatever may come after, you'll be happy there too, because you've been joyful here and now in facing all of life's joys and sorrows. Um, you know, there's, there's the saying in English that virtue is, is its own reward, and that can be a trite saying, but that can also be a profound understanding of, of how living well is, uh, uh, can be a source of living joy, joyfully, living with peace and love and compassion right here in the world. And one of these virtues seems to spill over into the second section, which is nonviolence and vegetarianism. We should talk about that. Well, there are in, interestingly, one of the things that is so interesting and to me profound about the understanding of ethics in the Quiddle is that uh, it is not a universalistic ethics, even though it is a kind of universal ethics. What do I mean by that? I mean that that each of these verses can speak to people who may be in very different walks of life or very different, um, have different aspirations. And so, for instance, there are verses which are specifically for people who have renounced the home life, who uh, have chosen to be a kind of ascetic on the road and to practice austerities. And Theravadavar devotes 13 chapters to that life, but he also devotes 20 chapters to the life of the home. And these are not put forward in opposition to each other. They are two ways. They are two paths. And someone on one path, uh, there are things that pertain to them, that fit them, that fit their hearts uh, in a way that, that, that don't fit the other path. And so, in, in some ways, the work is a very um, particular uh, work. You, a, a person can come to it and find guidance and wisdom for their own life path, their own station in the world, um, 
without it contradicting another one. And this is something that I think is very important, not only about this work, but about the larger ethos from which it comes, because we're so used to, and especially recently in, in the West, that there's sort of one way, and you either do it or you don't. Where here, there are many ways, and they, are, they can all be right. They can all be joyful and virtuous ways of living. I've read that this book over the centuries has influenced countless really important people. Uh, Leo Tolstoy comes to mind, but also Gandhi. And when I think of nonviolence, I'm wondering how much of his inspiration around nonviolence came from this book, The Corral. That's, uh, in fact, we know that he took a great deal of inspiration from the Quarrel. He, in fact, aspired to learn Tamar just so he could read the Quarrel in its original. And he thought that nobody, uh, no poet sage in India had given as much wisdom to the people in as few words as Thiruvalluvar. Um, so, you know, the, the, the chapters on nonviolence, on vegetarianism were particularly important to Gandhi, who, of course, in his own life was trying to show how one might be both a worldly political figure and a kind of holy person at the same time, that these didn't have to be opposites, but could be uh, interwoven uh, uh, in a uh, very healing uh, and life-affirming way. There's our word again, weaving, interwoven. <laughs> Uh, can you share some verses with us? Some of your favorite verses you must have committed to memory. What are what are yes. some of your favorites? Uh, there are a number of them. Let me share one that uh, is one of the very first verses I ever learned. In fact, it was a, a verse I learned even before I had entered into studying the work uh, formally or methodically. This is you know, 22 years ago or so. And and the reason I learned the verse was because I was so entranced by the wordplay and the music. In fact, I'll share it with you first in the original Tummer, because even uh, not understanding it, I think you can hear that it's playing on a set of sounds. Here's the verse. Nandri marappada nandrandra Nandralada andre marappada nandra and you can hear that the poet is playing on nandru, nandri, andru, andri. They all have this common consonant sound in the middle of these words. So I'll, I'll do the verse again in the original. Nandri marappada nandrandru, nandralada andre marappada nandru. And this nandri, nandru, all of these sounds are playing on the idea precisely of goodness and also of its opposite. We could say the not good or the uh, not goodness. And it comes from a chapter on gratitude. And this is how I've translated the verse. Forgetting good done is not good. Forgetting at once what is not good, good. The verse encapsulates a very old Tummer idea, and of course not exclusive to Tummer, um, but I think to traditions the world over, by which if someone does something good for you or to you, you remember that always, that it is of the nature of a good person to remember that good thing, no matter how small it might be. Uh, and of course, when I first learned the verse, that made great sense to me. I could resonate with that. 
But it was the second part that opened up for me in exploration. Because he says, but that bad thing, that not good thing that someone may have done to you, forget it. Forget it today, at once. And that took me much uh, longer to really sit with, because don't we want to remember things that have been done wrong? Isn't that part of justice? And indeed, uh, in the second part of the quarrel, which deals specifically with power, with money, with justice, uh, with the, the righteousness of a king or lack thereof, of course justice is a supreme concern. So why would he advocate or suggest to us that we forget things that have been done that, that were harmful? And what I came to, both with sort of in conversation with my Tamar teacher, but perhaps even more important, listening uh, to this verse, living with this verse for more than two decades, is that it has to do with uh, it has to do with where we place our heart. It has to do with where we turn our attention. And if we turn our attention to uh, wrong that we perceive to have been done to us, we dwell in that sense of wrongdoing. And we cultivate within ourselves, you know, the desire for revenge, for instance, um, the desire, the feeling of having been a victim, to put it in other terms. But what we attend to with our attention, with the eye of our heart, that becomes more and more important in our world, in our consciousness. Whereas if we turn our attention to goodness, then goodness grows. And so forgetting wrongdoing is not about ignoring justice. It is about cultivating goodness, which then in turn becomes the possibility of dealing with injustice, not only in the world, but in ourselves and in our, in our relationship to the world. I'll read that verse one more time so you can, you can allow it to play on your own sense of good and goodness. Forgetting good done is not good. Forgetting at once what is not good, good. This sounds like a wonderful book just to keep beside your bed or your easy chair and take in in bite-sized pieces, stick your finger in the book, and uh, close your eyes. And, yes, uh, <laughs> it's a really a fabulous way a to do that. So you can you, know, you sort of flip open to a, a chapter and, and see what catches your eye, because what catches your eye might have something to tell you in this moment now, uh, that something that might be very transformative might start you on a meditation, a living meditation uh, that would uh, offer you something healing, something holy, if you will. Like the I Ching, sort of open it at random and put your finger down and see what comes up. Yes, yes. You know, each of these verses is like, it's like a seed. And you can take that seed into your being, into the heart of your being, and you can sit with it. You can uh, nourish it, if you will, by listening to it, by dwelling with it. And then watch what happens. You watch that seed start to grow. You start, you see it start to yield blossoms, the fragrance of flowers. You start to see it bear fruit. Um, and and in a very, I think, not only magical, um, but delightful way. That's been my experience of these verses. Well, they sound truly timeless. I was going to say ancient text, but 
these really, uh, the title of this show is The Ageless Wisdom. This is ageless wisdom. And so it's just an honor to have you with us today to celebrate the publication just out of your new translation of the Chorale. It's K-U-R-A-L, folks, available, uh, as they say, wherever fine books are sold. And our guest is Thomas Satoshi Pruksma. And uh, Thomas, how can uh, our listeners find out more about you? Do you have a website we can refer people to? I do have a website. It's Thomas Pruksma. Thomas with an H. Pruksma, that's P-R-U-I-K-S-M-A dot com. And you can find there not only more information about the quarrel, but you can. there are uh, recordings of me reciting particular verses in both English and Tamar, as well as being in conversation with, with other writers and healers and teachers about specific verses, where we get to explore how these verses um, can resonate with many different areas of life. And you can also learn about some of my other books, including another translation from Tamar, Give, Eat, and Live, Poems of Avayar, and my own poetry, uh, a book that was released uh, in 2019 called The Safety of Edges. Again, that's at my website, thomasproxma.com. The Safety of Edges. The Safety of Edges. Oh, I love that. I'm going to look for that. Thomas, it's been a joy meeting you and chatting with you, and congratulations on your new translation just out. Best of luck with that. Uh, Very much appreciate you making the time to join us today on KPFK. Best of luck to you. Good fortune as they would say in the East. And uh, again, thanks. Thank you. It's really been an honor to to be here with you and to uh, to speak about this work. In fact, let me want to share one last verse, if I may, which has to do with, uh, it comes from the chapter on learning. And it has to do with learning and friendship. The poet says, the work of the wise Delight on meeting and feeling on leaving. So it's really been a delight to be with you, and I feel in myself the yearning for more conversation uh, the next time we get to meet. Oh, you can count on it. We'll do this again down the road for sure. Thomas Satoshi Pruksma, and the new book is The Chorale, translation from the old text, the old Tamil text. Very, very revered book of wisdom, aphorisms from India. You're going to love it. Thanks for listening. I appreciate you being with us today. Tell your friends about it. It's the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School every Tuesday at 1 in the afternoon on KPFK 90.7 FM for all of Southern California. Streaming for the world at kpfk.org. Streaming on demand at the homepage, theagelesswisdom.com. The T-H-E is part of that. And you can find out more about me at michaelbenner.com. As always, be gentle, love life, and take care of each other. From Los Angeles, this is Michael Benner on KPFK 90.7.